0: Section 21 of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce Translated by Douglas Ainsley Historical Summary, Part 3 the revolutionary who set aside the old definitions of aesthetic, and for the first time revealed the true nature of art in poetry, is the Italian Giambattista Vico. What were the ideas developed by Vico in his Scienza Nuova, 1725? They were neither more nor less than the solution of the problem posed by Plato, attempted in vain by Aristotle, again posed and again unsolved at the Renaissance. Is poetry a rational or an irrational thing? Is it spiritual or animal? If it be spiritual, what is its true nature, and in what way does it differ from art and science? Plato, we know, banished poetry to the inferior region of the soul among the animal spirits. Vico, on the contrary, raises up poetry and makes of it a period in the history of humanity. And since Vico's is an ideal history, whose periods are not concerned with contingent facts but with spiritual forms, he makes of it a moment of the ideal history of the spirit, a form of knowledge. Poetry comes before the intellect, but after feeling. Plato had confused it with feeling, and for that reason banished it from his republic. Men feel, says Vico, before observing— then they observe with perturbation of the soul. Finally, they reflect with the pure intellect. He goes on to say that poetry being composed of passion and of feeling, the nearer it approaches to the particular, the more true it is, while exactly the reverse is true of philosophy. Imagination is independent and autonomous as regards the intellect. Not only does the intellect fail of perfection but all it can do is to destroy it. Quote, the studies of poetry and metaphysic are naturally opposed. Poets are the feeling, philosophers the intellect of the human race. End quote. The weaker the reason, the stronger the imagination. Philosophy, he says, deals with abstract thought or universals, poetry with the particular. Painters and poets differ only in their material. Homer and the great poets appear in barbaric times. Dante, for instance, appeared in The Renewed Barbarism of Italy. The poetic ages preceded the philosophical, and poetry is the father of prose by necessity of nature, not by the caprice of pleasure. Fables or imaginary universals were conceived before reasoned or philosophical universals. To Homer, says Vico, belongs wisdom. But only poetic wisdom, quote, his beauties are not those of a spirit softened and civilized by any philosophy. End quote. If any one make poetry in epochs of reflection, he becomes a child again. he does not reflect with his intellect but follows his fancy and dwells upon particulars. If the true poet make use of philosophic ideas, he only does so that he may change logic into imagination. Here we have a profound statement of the line of demarcation between science and art. They cannot be confused again. His statement of the difference between poetry and history is a trifle less clear. He explains why, to Aristotle, poetry seemed more philosophical than history, and at the same time he refutes Aristotle's error that poetry deals with the universal, history with the particular. Poetry equals science, not because it is occupied with the intellectual concept, but because, like science, it is ideal. A good poetical fable must be all ideal. Quote, With the idea the poet gives their being to things which are without it. Poetry is all fantastic as being the art of painting the idea, not ictastic like the art of painting portraits. That is why poets, like painters, are called divine, because in that respect they resemble God the creator, End quote. Vico ends by identifying poetry and history. The difference between them is posterior and accidental. Quote, but as it is impossible to impart false ideas because the false consists of a vicious combination of ideas, so it is impossible to impart a tradition which, though it be false, has not at first contained some element of truth. Thus mythology appears for the first time, not as the invention of an individual, but as the spontaneous vision of the truth as it appears to primitive man." Poetry and language are, for Vico, substantially identical. He finds in the origins of poetry the origins of languages and letters. He believed that the first languages consisted in mute acts or acts accompanied by bodies which had natural relations to the ideas that it was desired to signify. With great cleverness, he compared these pictured languages to heraldic arms and devices, and to hieroglyphs. He observed that during the barbarism of the Middle Age, the mute language of signs must return and we find it in the heraldry and blazonry of that epoch hence come three kinds of languages divine silent languages heroic emblematic languages and speech languages formal logic could never satisfy a man with such revolutionary ideas upon poetry and language he describes the Aristotelian syllogism as a method which explains universals in their particulars, rather than unites particulars to obtain universals, looks upon Zeno and the Sorites as a means of subtilizing rather than sharpening the intelligence, and concludes that Bacon is a great philosopher when he advocates and illustrates induction, quote, which has been followed by the English to the great advantage of experimental philosophy, end quote. Hence he proceeds to criticize mathematics, which had hitherto always been looked upon as the type of the perfect science. Vico is indeed a revolutionary, a pioneer. He knows very well that he is in direct opposition to all that has been thought before about poetry. Quote, My new principles of poetry upset all that first Plato and then Aristotle have said about the origin of poetry. All that has been said by the Patrizi, by the Scaligers, and by the Castelvetri. I have discovered that it was through lack of human reason that poetry was born so sublime that neither the arts, nor the poetics, nor the critiques could cause another equal to it to be born. I say equal and not superior. Quote. He goes so far as to express shame at having to report the stupidities of great philosophers upon the origin of song and verse he shows his dislike for the cartesian philosophy and its tendency to dry up the imagination by denying all the faculties of the soul which come to it from the body and talks of his own time as of one which freezes all the generous quality of the best poetry and thus precludes it from being understood as regards grammatical forms, Vico may be described as an adherent of the great reaction of the Renaissance against scholastic verbalism and formalism. This reaction brought back as a value the experience of feeling, and afterwards with romanticism gave its right place to the imagination. Vico, in his Ciencia Nuova, may be said to have been the first to draw attention to the imagination. Although he makes many luminous remarks on history and the development of poetry among the Greeks, his work is not really a history, but a science of the spirit or of the ideal. It is not the ethical, logical, or economic moment of humanity which interests him, but the imaginative moment. He discovered the creative imagination, and it may almost be said of the Scienza nuova of Vico that it is aesthetic the discovery of a new world of a new mode of knowledge this was the contribution of the genius of vico to the progress of humanity he showed aesthetic to be an autonomous activity it remained to distinguish the science of the spirit from history the modifications of the human spirit from the historic vicissitudes of peoples aesthetic from homeric civilization but although Goethe, Herder, and Wolf were acquainted with the Scienza nuova, the importance of this wonderful book did not at first dawn upon the world. Wolf, in his Prolegomena to Homer, thought that he was dealing merely with an ingenious speculator on Homeric themes. He did not realize that the intellectual stature of Vico far surpassed that of the most able philologists. The fortunes of aesthetic after Vico were very various, and the list of aestheticians who fell back into the old pedagogic definition, or elaborated the mistakes of Baumgarten, is very long. Yet with C. H. Heidenreich in Germany and Sulzer in Switzerland, we find that the truths contained in Baumgarten have begun to bear fruit. J. J. Herder, 1769, was more important than these, and he placed Baumgarten upon a pedestal though criticizing his pretension of creating an ars pulcher cogitandi instead of a simple sciencia de pulcuro et pulcuris philosophice cogitans. Herder admitted Baumgarten's definition of poetry as oratio sensitiva perfecta, perfect sensitivized speech, and this is probably the best definition of poetry that has ever been given. It touches the real essence of poetry and opens to thought the whole of the philosophy of the beautiful. Herder, although he does not cite Vico upon aesthetic questions, yet praises him as a philosopher. His remarks about poetry as, quote, the maternal language of humanity, as the garden is more ancient than the cultivated field, painting than writing, song than declamation, exchange than commerce, end quote, are replete with the spirit of the Italian philosopher but despite similar happy phrases herder is philosophically the inferior of the great italian he is a firm believer in the leibnizian law of continuity and does not surpass the conclusions of baumgarten herder and his friend Hamann did good service as regards the philosophy of language the French encyclopedists, J. J. Rousseau, D'Alembert, and many others of this period, were none of them able to get free of the idea that a word is either a natural, mechanical fact, or a sign attached to a thought. The only way out of this difficulty is to look upon the imagination as itself active and expressive in verbal imagination, and language as the language of intuition, not of the intelligence. Herder talks of language as an understanding of the soul with itself. Thus, language begins to appear not as an arbitrary invention or a mechanical fact, but as a primitive affirmation of human activity, as a creation. But all unconscious of the discoveries of Vico, the great mass of eighteenth-century writers, try their hands at every sort of solution." the abbe battieux published in seventeen forty six les beaux arts réduits un seul principe which is a perfect little bouquet of contradictions the abbe finds himself confronted with difficulties at every turn but with un peu d'esprit en de tout, and when for instance he has to explain artistic enjoyment of things displeasing he remarks that the imitation never being perfect like reality the horror caused by reality disappears. But the French were equalled and indeed surpassed by the English in their amateur aesthetics. The painter Hogarth was one day reading in Italian a speech about the beauty of certain figures attributed to Michelangelo. This led him to imagine that the figurative arts depend upon a principle which consists of conforming to a given line, in 1745, he produced a serpentine line as frontispiece of his collection of engravings, which he described as the line of beauty. Thus, he succeeded in exciting universal curiosity, which he proceeded to satisfy with his analysis of beauty. Here, he begins by rightly combating the error of judging paintings by their subject and by the degree of their imitation, instead of by their form, which is the essential in art. He gives his definition of form, and afterwards proceeds to describe the waving lines which are beautiful and those which are not, and maintains that among them all there is but one that is really worthy to be called the line of beauty, and one definite serpentine line, the line of grace. The pig, the bear, the spider, and the frog are ugly because they do not possess serpentine lines. E. Burke, with a like assurance in his examples, was equally devoid of certainty in his general principles. He declares that the natural properties of an object cause pleasure or pain to the imagination, but that the latter also procures pleasure from their resemblance to the original. He does not speak further of the second of these, but gives a long list of the natural properties of the sensible, beautiful object. Having concluded his list, he remarks that these are, in his opinion, the qualities upon which beauty depends, and which are the least liable to caprice and confusion. But comparative smallness, delicate structure, colouring vivid but not too much so, are all mere empirical observations of no more value than those of Hogarth, with whom Burke must be classed as an aesthetician. Their works are spoken of as classics." classics indeed they are but of the sort that arrive at no conclusion henry home lord kames is on a level a trifle above the two just mentioned he seeks the true principles of the beau arts in order to transform criticism into a rational science he selects facts and experience for this purpose but in his definition of beauty which he divides into two parts relative and intrinsic he is unable to explain the latter save by a final cause which he finds in the almighty such theories as the three above mentioned defy classification because they are not composed by any scientific method their authors pass from physiological sensualism to moralism from imitation of nature to finalism and to transcendental mysticism without consciousness of the incongruity of their theses at variance each with itself. The German, Ernest Plotner, at any rate, did not suffer from a like confusion of thought. He developed his researches on the lines of Hogarth, but was only able to discover a prolongation of sexual pleasure in aesthetic facts. Where, he exclaims, quote, is there any beauty that does not come from the feminine figure, the center of all beauty? The undulating line is beautiful because it is found in the body of woman. Essentially, feminine movements are beautiful. The notes of music are beautiful when they melt into one another. A poem is beautiful when one thought embraces another with lightness and facility. Quote. French sensualism shows itself quite incapable of understanding aesthetic production, and the associationism of David Hume is not more fortunate in this respect. The Dutchman Hemsterhuis, 1769, developed an ingenious theory mingling mystical and sensualist theory with some just remarks, which, afterwards, in the hands of Jacobi, became sentimentalism. Hemsterhuis believed beauty to be a phenomenon arising from the meeting by the sentimentalism, which gives multiplicity, with the internal sense, which leads to unity. Consequently, the beautiful will be that which presents the greatest number of ideas in the shortest space of time. To man is denied supreme unity, but here he finds approximative unity. Hence the joy arising from the beautiful, which has some analogy with the joy of love. With Winkleman, 1764, Platonism or Neoplatonism was vigorously renewed. The creator of the history of the figurative arts saw in the divine indifference and more than human elevation of the works of Greek sculpture a beauty which had descended from the seventh heaven and become incarnate in them. Mendelssohn, the follower of Baumgarten, had denied beauty to God. Winkleman, the Neoplatonician, gave it back to him. He holds that perfect beauty is to be found only in God. Quote, the conception of human beauty becomes the more perfect in proportion as it can be thought as in agreement with the Supreme Being, who is distinguished from matter by his unity and indivisibility. End quote. To the other characteristics of supreme beauty, Winckelmann adds the absence of any sort of signification. Lines and dots cannot explain beauty, for it is not they alone which form it its form is not proper to any definite person, it expresses no sentiment, no feeling of passion, for these break up unity and diminish or obscure beauty. According to Winckelmann, beauty must be like a drop of pure water taken from the spring, which is the more healthy the less it has of taste, because it is purified of all foreign elements." A special faculty is required to appreciate this beauty which Winkleman is inclined to call intelligence or a delicate internal sense free of all instinctive passions of pleasure and of friendship. Since it becomes a question of perceiving something immaterial, Winkleman banishes color to a secondary place. True beauty, he says, is that of form, a word which describes lines and contours, as though lines and contours could not also be perceived by the senses, or could appear to the eye without any color. It is the destiny of error to be obliged to contradict itself when it does not decide to dwell in a brief aphorism, in order to live as well as may be with facts and concrete problems. THE HISTORY OF Winckelmann DEALT WITH HISTORIC CONCRETE FACTS WITH WHICH IT WAS NECESSARY TO RECONCILE THE IDEA OF A SUPREME BEAUTY. HIS ADMISSION OF THE CONTOURS OF LINES AND HIS SECONDARY ADMISSION OF COLORS IS A COMPROMISE. HE MAKES ANOTHER WITH REGARD TO THE PRINCIPLE OF EXPRESSION. Quote, SINCE THERE IS NO INTERMEDIARY BETWEEN PAIN AND PLEASURE IN HUMAN NATURE, AND SINCE A HUMAN BEING WITHOUT THESE FEELINGS IS INCONCEIVABLE, we must place the human figure in a moment of action and of passion which is what is termed expression in art quote. so winckelmann studied expression after beauty he makes a third compromise between his one indivisible supreme and constant beauty and individual beauties winckelmann preferred the male to the female body as the most complete incarnation of supreme beauty but he was not able to shut his eyes to the indisputable fact that there also exist beautiful bodies of women and even of animals. Raphael Mengs, the painter, was an intimate friend of Winckelmann and associated himself with him in his search for a true definition of the beautiful. His ideas were generally in accordance with those of Winckelmann. He defines beauty as the visible idea of perfection— which is to perfection what the visible is to the mathematical point. He falls under the influence of the argument from design. The Creator has ordained the multiplicity of beauties. Things are beautiful according to our ideas of them, and these ideas come from the Creator. Thus, each beautiful thing has its own type, and a child would appear ugly if it resembled a man. He adds to his remarks in this sense, quote, as the diamond is alone perfect among stones, gold among metals, and man among living creatures, so there is distinction in each species, and but little is perfect. In his dreams of beauty he looks upon beauty as an intermediate disposition, which contains a part of perfection and a part of the agreeable, and forms a tertium quid, which differs from the other two and deserves a special name he names four sources of the art of painting—beauty, significant or expressive character, harmony, and coloring. The first of these he finds among the ancients, the second with Raphael, the third with Correggio, the fourth with Titian. Meng's does not succeed in rising above this empiricism of the studio save to declaim about the beauty of nature virtue, forms, and proportions— and indeed, everything, including the first cause, which is the most beautiful of all. The name of G. E. Lessing, 1766, is well known to all concerned with art problems. The ideas of Winckelmann reappear in Lessing with less of a metaphysical tinge. For Lessing, the end of art is the pleasing. And since this is a superfluous thing, he thought that the legislator should not allow to art the liberty indispensable to science, which seeks the truth necessary to the soul. For the Greeks, painting was, as it should always be, imitation of beautiful bodies. Everything disagreeable or ill-formed should be excluded from painting. Quote, painting as clever imitation may imitate deformity. Painting as a fine art does not permit this. He was more inclined to admit deformity in poetry, as there it is less shocking, and the poet can make use of it to produce in us certain feelings, such as the ridiculous or the terrible. In his Dramaturgy, 1767, Lessing followed the peripatetics and believed that the rules of Aristotle were as absolute as the theorems of Euclid. His polemic against the French school is chiefly directed to claiming a piece in poetry for the verisimilar, as against absolute historical exactitude. He held the universal to be a sort of mean of what appears in the individual. The catharsis was, in his view, a transformation of the passions into virtuous dispositions, and he held the duty of poetry to be inspiration of the love of virtue. He followed Winckelmann in believing that the expression of physical beauty was the supreme object of painting. This beauty exists only as an ideal, which finds its highest expression in man. Animals possess it to a slighter extent, vegetable and inanimate nature not at all. Those mistaken enough to occupy themselves with depicting the latter are imitating beauties deprived of all ideal." They work only with eye and hand. Genius has little, if any, share in their productions. Lessing found the physical ideal to reside chiefly in form, but also in the ideal of color and in permanent expression. Mere coloring and transitory expression were for him without ideal, quote, because nature has not imposed upon herself anything definite as regards them, end quote. At bottom, he does not care for coloring, finding in the pen drawings of artists, quote, a life, a liberty, a delicacy lacking to their pictures, end quote. He asks, quote, whether even the most wonderful coloring can make up for such a loss, and whether it be not desirable that the art of oil painting had never been invented, end quote. This ideal beauty Wonderfully constructed from divine quintessence and subtle pen and brush strokes, this academic mystery had great success. In Italy, it was much discussed in the environment of Mengs and of Winckelmann, who were working there. The first counterblast to their aesthetic Neoplatonism came from an Italian named Spalletti and took the form of a letter addressed to Mengs. He represents the characteristic as the true principle of art. THE PLEASURE OBTAINED FROM BEAUTY IS INTELLECTUAL AND TRUTH IS ITS OBJECT. WHEN THE SOUL MEETS WITH WHAT IS CHARACTERISTIC AND WHAT REALLY SUITS THE OBJECT TO BE REPRESENTED, THE WORK IS HELD TO BE BEAUTIFUL. A WELL-MADE MAN WITH A WOMAN'S FACE IS UGLY. HARMONY, ORDER, VARIETY, PROPORTION, ETC., THESE ARE ELEMENTS OF BEAUTY AND MAN ENJOYS THE WIDENING OF HIS KNOWLEDGE BEFORE DISAGREEABLE THINGS CHARACTERISTICALLY REPRESENTED spalletti defines beauty as quote, that modification inherent to the object observed which presents it as it should appear with an infallible characteristic thus the aristotelian thesis found a supporter in italy some years before any protestation was heard in germany Lewis Hurt, the historian of art, 1797, observed that ancient monuments represented all sorts of forms, from the most beautiful and sublime to the most ugly and most common. He therefore denied that ideal beauty was the principle of art, and for it substituted the characteristic applicable equally to gods, heroes, and animals. End of section 21 Recording by Will Irache, www.willsvoice.com.